In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, is the gleaming modern city of Astana in Kazakhstan the Illuminati capital? Every three years, at the apex of a giant glass pyramid in Kazakhstan is where the assembly of world traditional religions meet, where they invite religious leaders from around the world to meet and discuss notions of religious equality. Uh, it's a sort of multi-faith cathedral dedicated to the renunciation of violence and promotion of faith. Have you subscribed to my free monthly newsletter yet? The Inner Sanctum is jam-packed with news and information, and it's delivered free to your email inbox once a month. All you need to do is register your name and email address at my website, strangeplanet.ca. The Inner Sanctum contains a spotlight on previous guests from my weekly radio program and this podcast. There's my podcast pick of the month, a book club, a This Month in Conspiracy History section, and more. The Inner Sanctum is yours, absolutely free. Again, all you need to do is register at strangeplanet.ca. And once you've registered, your name automatically goes into a monthly draw for great Strange Planet gear for my Strange Planet shop. Register right now at strangeplanet.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Just a reminder that tomorrow, Saturday, January 4th, I'll be hosting Coast to Coast AM. And then again on January 24th and January 25th. As always, go to coasttocoastam.com to find a list of affiliates or radio stations where you can listen.
Coming up, Frag Elbow was featured on the code-breaking, or featured as the uh, the code-breaking protagonist in the best-selling book, The Hermetic Code. And uh, he is an architectural historian, and we'll touch on the Masonic symbology encoded in uh, places like the uh, the Manitoba legislature. Uh, but he has this beautiful, beautiful new book out, Astana, Architecture, Myth, and Destiny. Now, Astana is not, uh, you know, some mythical... Well, it is mythical, but it's real, too. It's the act, It's a, this gleaming, modern capital city of Kazakhstan. And um, without a doubt, the world's weirdest capital city. Uh, we're going to find out all about the architecture in Astana, what Mr. Albo is calling the Illuminati capital of the world. The only thing I know about Kazakhstan is um, we had a, uh, being a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, I remember we had a, a, a kind of a, a big, lanky forward by the name of Andropov, and he was from Kazakhstan. That's it. That's all you know. And then, all of a sudden, the other day in the mail comes this very, very heavy book. There were two of them, actually. And my little guy North is on mail call duty this week, so he had to go to the, the door. He could barely carry this thing down the stairs. It's it's just a solid... Um, it's like a coffee table book, except it's not just all beautiful, glossy photographs, and there are there are many of them. It's just jam-packed with amazing information here as well. And uh, we're going to talk about that. Astana, the architecture, the myth, and destiny. It is the ninth largest country in the world. It's the largest landlocked country in the world. And, of course, a former Soviet republic. But it has some weird architecture. Some of it's, you know, it's very new. It's shiny and gleamy, but it's got uh, some obvious ancient Egyptian influences. There's a pyramid there, the phoenix, uh, the world's largest glass sphere, which I believe is the library. So, again, why are some calling Astana world headquarters for the Illuminati? Let's find out, shall we? Frank Albo was featured as the code-breaking protagonist in the best-selling book, The Hermetic Code, and his approach to architecture, landscape, and design seeks to transform public spaces into interactive journeys of discovery, which elevate the mind and promote a sense of wonder. He holds graduate, de- graduate degrees in ancient Near Eastern languages, art history, and a Ph.D. in the history of architecture from the University of Cambridge. Dr. Albo has a unique ability to peel back conventional history to provide new vistas of understanding about our built environment and the cultures of the past. He's currently an adjunct professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, where he specializes in architecture, Freemasonry, and the Western esoteric tradition. Frank Albo, how are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. It's, um, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, first of all, congrats on the book. This is truly impressive. It's just, it's a, it's a gorgeous book. I mean, never mind the information, which is, you know, amazing, but just, it just looks terrific and, uh, I, I congratulate you on that. Now, a lot of people, well, a lot of people know you from your book, The Hermetic Code, and about, uh, you know, Masonic symbols in the Manitoba legislature and your search to sort of uncover the, the meaning and so forth and, and learn about the, the architect, Frank Worthington Simon. So let me ask mm-hmm. you a little bit about that before we move on to Astana. If you well, could, uh, certainly. Yeah, if you could just take us on a, a very quick guided tour of the Manitoba legislature. Tell me about some of the, the interesting symbols that sort of first jumped out at you. Uh, you know, as a young, I guess, as a young grad student. 
Well, it happened by sheer accident. Um, I was in the last year of my undergraduate degree, and I was going into the Department of uh, Near and Middle Eastern Languages at the University of Toronto, and I spotted on the roof of the Manitoba Legislative Building two recumbent Egyptian sphinxes. And like the fabled story of old, I was enchanted thoroughly by this bizarre feature and set out to answer, as it were, the riddle of the Sphinx. And that just brought me into the door where um, I began to notice other features of the building that thoroughly inspired me. And um, it took me down a rabbit hole of basically enchantment and discovery where I spent four graduate degrees and ten years trying to get into the mind of the dead British architect and genius, Frank Worthington Simon, who built this building as a reconstruction of King Solomon's Temple and also a uh, 5,000 years of lost architectural knowledge. He was a high-level Freemason. He believed in the tradition of Freemasonry very deeply and used the building as a tableau to tell the story of his ancient fraternity in a coded way. It's so coded, in fact, that for 100 years no one ever noticed some of the most obvious features of the building, <clears throat> including, of course, that there is Hermes Trismegistus on the dome. The golden boy. Correct. And, and explain why is Hermes, or I guess that's Mercury in the ancient Roman pantheon, why, why is Hermes special to the Freemasons? Well, Hermes is one of the Prisca Theologia, which for Renaissance historians and scholars was the first philosopher. He was seen as a pagan prophet of Christian truth before the, the coming of the Christian revelation and a contemporary of Moses. He was attributed to have having written 40,000 books, but um, by the time of the Renaissance, these works were lost and then suddenly rediscovered, and it brought about an entirely new way of seeing the ancient world. Um, Hermes, as we know, or Mercury, the um, elusive messenger of Zeus, is not the Hermes Trismegistus of, um, that I'm speaking of. Uh, this particular Hermes is a, a conflation of the Egyptian god Thoth, the god of writing and magic and the ancient scribe, and um, the Mercury that we're familiar with, the guide of souls, the psychopomp, and the trickster. And around late antiquity, both of these figures merge into a new character, Trismegistus, the thrice greatest, and he becomes the father of all esoteric knowledge, alchemy, astrology, uh, number magic, mysticism through uh, uh, occult philosophy, and basically the entire species of uh, esoteric philosophy should be uh, attributed in total to this character, Hermes Trismegistus, and in fact in Freemasonry, he uh, appears in the oldest uh, manuscripts uh, of the medieval period that uh, uh, signal the origins of Freemasonry. So there he is, glistening on the dome, um, locally known as the Golden Boy, but um, unaware is that he is pointing to these mysteries deep inside the building. Uh, now, Frank Worthington Simon, he, did he not, didn't he work on Balmoral Castle for Queen Victoria? Mm -hmm. Did he yeah, remodel he, it or something? He worked on several very noted buildings. He was an elusive uh, professor. He had an interest in uh, um, uh, biblical languages. His father, for instance, was um, uh, one of the most famous uh, nonconformist theologians of the British Empire. And uh, at a very young age, he took towards finding uh, mysteries coded in art and architecture and sought to 
basically rebuild them. So in the case of Balmoral, he, Balmoral, he did the, the reconstructions there, but he worked on many wonderful buildings. But he had an, uh, an artist penchant for truth. He, was, uh, he, he had a wandering spirit, but he, uh, his final work was this building in, in Winnipeg which at the time was um, the Continental Showpiece. It was the most expensive building in the country. Winnipeg was destined to be the Chicago of the North. It's not the Winnipeg that we uh, see of today. It was um, supposed to be a city of great promise, and this building was the signal, kind of the the Roman maxim, build it and they will come, Uh, this idea of using grand architecture to signal the the rise of uh, the city that was growing faster than uh, any other city in North America for at the turn of the 20th century. So this building was this showpiece, and Simon was selected to build it, and he basically poured into the building um, uh, a a history lesson in stone, and he was hoping to be figured out. Ah, so he, the people that commissioned this work and and hired him, they didn't know what he was doing. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, there's some speculation that some of uh, the artists, he had some very seasoned artists that uh, worked alongside him, might have known one, uh, one element or another. But I think in total, he was the grand architect, and it was his vision to build it in that way. So just walking through the building, uh, the, the sphinxes, you wouldn't notice because they're, they're not visible from the ground but they bear a hieroglyphic inscription on their chest, a bona fide ancient hieroglyphic message which uh, beckons the sun god to give life to something in the building. Um, well, And we find out later what that is. You walk into the Grand Staircase Hall, perhaps the most beautiful staircase hall in, in North America, and it is designed uh, to be exactly 66.6 feet in width and 66.6 feet in length. Just a few more moments on the Manitoba legislature because it's fascinating. You were sort of giving us the guided tour, but I can't figure out where the architect was coming from because, I mean, on the one hand, there are allusions to, like, the Last Supper in there, I recall reading about, but then there are these, you know, more pagan allusions. Was he was he a Christian? What was he? Oh, yeah, he was certainly uh, uh, a Christian persuasion, but uh, as part of the fraternal tradition in which he's emulating Freemasonry, they... Uh, uphold the notion that they are the progenitors, the builders of the great religious institutions of the world. So from the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, right up into the uh, pagan temples and, uh, of course, the, the Egyptian marbles. So the idea is that he contained in one building this kind of encyclopedia of world architecture as an homage to the craft of Freemasonry. And um, in, in that regard, there is one building that stands alone as the um, the beau ideal of perfection, and that's King Solomon's Temple, and that's where he chose to incorporate perhaps the most important room in the building uh, as a perfect reconstruction of the Holy of Holies of King Solomon's Temple with a very with a replica Ark of the Covenant. And was it wasn't it his intention? Uh, this is kind of a pipe dream, I think. But he actually thought that the, uh, I guess they call them MLAs out there, the members of the legislative assembly would actually wear togas to, to, to <laughs> debate right. and to vote. Well, yes, he he is a student of the idea that uh, arrives out of Freemasonry that architecture, among all disciplines known to the human imagination, has the capacity to reform the soul. So the idea is is that could you construct a building 
that by virtue of its design and its geometry and its, and its uh, uh, orientation, that it would in- inculcate um, divine virtues upon you. And that was the idea with this building, so much so that he believed that when it opened to the public, it would make you more intelligent, better balanced, and altogether more civilized human beings just by entering into the building. And uh, I, I take the people for the last seven years. I've done guided tours of the mm-hmm. building, and um, uh, I sort of conclude by saying at the very end, do you feel in some regard, knowing what you've now seen here, that uh, you, you feel somewhat more illuminated as, as you leave? And uh, obviously I leave that as a, as a burning question. Right. And the premier at the time, Gary Doerr, Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't he come wandering into your office one time and ask, asking you about your work and, and said something like, what do you think the place is haunted? And mm-hmm. Tell me about Well, that. actually, uh, he invited me to his office. Oh. I wrote uh, my undergraduate thesis on the building, focusing on two rooms. And uh, one I called the room of protection, the other I called the altar. And he, unbeknownst to me, this, this paper that I wrote had circulated to the highest levels of government, and when it landed on the premier's desk, he called me into his office, and I was rather shocked to see across his oak desk a copy of my, my thesis, and he was flipping through it, and he sternly looked up at me and said, I think that you think this building's haunted, and I very brashly said, uh, the White House has nothing on this building, and right <laughs> then and there, he gave me a grant to... Um, explore the building's properties. And he said, well, what do we need? And I said, well, I need to be in this building at all times of the day. Uh, I need to go to all parts of the building. I need access to all government documents related to the building's construction. And um, I was basically given this carte blanche access for two years, and it led to what later became the publication, The Hermetic Code. Well, good for you for for grabbing the bull, or I should say the bison's <laughs> bison <laughs> right. by the uh, bison by the uh, the horns. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, and uh, and people have sort of referred to you as a real life uh, uh, Dan Brown uh, for unraveling this mystery. Um, now, mm-hmm. I got to be honest with you, I I was not familiar with uh, Kazakhstan's capital city until uh, this impressive book arrived at my front door. Why do you say it could be the uh, the capital city for the Illuminati? Well. Those aren't my words. That's basically the um, conclusion that is many people, bloggers and, and otherwise, have um, uh, uh, exclaimed on the Internet. So that's what drew, drew my attention to, to the city is, well, f- uh, on the surface, and, 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 and rightly so, most people in the West probably think of Kazakhstan and the knee-jerk thought response is, isn't that the homeland of Borat, um, uh, let alone the Illuminati capital of the world? So... <laughs> I was, uh, similar to how I stumbled upon the Manitoba Legislative Building, I was preparing a, a graduate course on utopian cities for students, and I wanted to do a chronology of this, these times and efforts to build paradise on Earth. So I thought I'd begin with Plato's Atlantis and conclude with um, Astana, the most recently planned capital in the world, the capital of Kazakhstan. And as I was doing my, my Google search, I stumble upon the same nefarious conclusions that when you see a giant glass pyramid, a uh, a large all-seeing eye, and a reconstruction of a UFO as the architectural marvels of a capital, that has led many people to assume that it must be the Illuminati capital of the world. And, and funnily enough, with around the same time, there were three great archaeological discoveries that happened in Kazakhstan uh, over the last say, uh, seven years. One was um, 
potentially uh, the the first step pyramid on the the, the steps of um, uh, of Central Asia. Uh, the other are massive, immense geoglyphs like the Nazca lines in Peru, but um, and among these symbols that have been carved on the ground perhaps 8,000 years ago is the, the very first swastika. And uh, additionally, there is, and this has created a lot of rumble, is a giant 1,200-foot pentagram, which happened to be spotted by somebody doing a search on Google Earth that's called the Devil's Pentagram. So uh, there were all of these wild associations with uh, Astana, and I thought this was the perfect opportunity to step in and find out what was, uh, what was really brewing there. And um, uh, funnily enough, and my apologies for this monologue, but as I was doing all this research, like out of the blue, I got a call from the protocol officer of Manitoba. Every now and then when dignitaries come to Manitoba, I give, uh, I'm requested by the government to give tours, uh, whether it's the Prince of Wales or um, Her Majesty the Queen. Um, I'll be asked to give a kind of sanitized version of the Hermetico tour. And on this occasion, the ambassador of Kazakhstan and his wife were there at the same time that I'm reading all across my um, uh, the tabs of my computer screen that the Illuminati has created a capital called Astana. <laughs> so I just jumped on the opportunity to meet him. And uh, when we met, um, I basically said that um, the, the architecture is so bizarre and strange, you need a, um, a formidable study a historian to examine it. And um, that, that is what launched the book. Well, now the, the man behind a, a lot of the, the designs is, is the leader there, right? Naz, mm-hmm. Naz, oh, yeah. Nazarbayev, who, I mean, he rules that country with an iron fist. Oh, totally. Uh, I mean, here, this, this, uh, among the uh, 21st century autocrats, this guy is Tom Brady. There is perhaps <laughs> no other modern leader to have used architecture and fantasy to crystallize the gr- dreams of a nation like Nazarbayev, and he has done it with uh, pretty much uh, autonomous control. Um, and so Astana is really the, the brainchild of a single leader. And um, so that, that's, that, that's what he set out to do. I, I turn this on its head if, um, if you um, have, have peered through my book yeah. that um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in not looking at the, the, the politics of, of statescraft, but really how we have used architecture and myth to um, galvanize our hopes and dreams, unlike uh, Nothing else. These are the two ingredients that have, that have really forged nations, architecture and mythology. All right. It's quite a remarkable building, this Beiterek Tower. It looks like a, a, a hand coming out of the ground holding a golden ball or a golden egg. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that, that building. That's totally bizarre. Yeah. It's, um, Beiterek Tower is meant to symbolize the tree of life, and you summit the tree of life and you're informed about this ancient Kazakh fable, which is actually a Sumerian table, a fable called the Tale of Atana, perhaps the oldest myth in world history, um, around um, uh, this, this young child hero that saves humanity by being lifted up into heaven on the back of a hero, uh, on the back of, of an eagle. 
and this building basically evokes this ancient fable and constructs myth into this, this golden glory. So the sphere in the center is meant to be the sun. You're meant to participate in this journey by journeying up into the, uh, the golden rays of the sun, and you peer down the great mall of Astana, and you see nothing but phoenix, phoenix, eagle, eagle. And uh, I look into that and I explore that notion of how eagle and statecraft have gone hand in hand since prior to Rome. Well, in fact, why is it that the eagle has been the emblem of choice for um, the, the rise of a new culture or civilization, whether it's Mexico or um, Germany yeah. or Persia or the very first city-states of Sumer? It's always been the eagle. The Byzantine, so the Byzantine the Empire, the double-headed eagle in that case. Yeah, of course, exactly. I mean, but Zeus, one of his symbols was the eagle. Does it go back to Zeus? Yes. In fact, Zeus is one of the uh, elements of this age-old fable called the Tale of Etana. Most people, if they know anything about uh, Sumerian literature, are probably familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. But yeah. uh, even older than Gilgamesh is this story, uh, which begins basically with the construction of a great city, a monumental central tower, and the quest for eternal youth with the help of an eagle. And this story has been retold in countless ways, about 300 variations around the world, from Ireland to the Arctic Circle, from the Alexander Romance to Garuda, the myth of, uh, of um, uh, the Hindu um, uh, um, uh, deity Vishnu, and countless others. In Greek mythology, it is Ganymede, who is the boy abducted by Zeus in the form of an eagle to serve as the cupbearer in Olympus. So it's, it's a very ancient uh, fable and story or myth. So the buildings in Astana are not just, you know, and I think that's a very blasé account to just say, oh, it's an, it's an Illuminati city. It goes much, much deeper. It goes into the, the, the notion of myth as a form of, of changing a whole new order of things. And that's what the capital is setting out to do. More of my conversation with Frank Elbow when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. I want to tell you about something I discovered recently called Carbon 60. I call it the Miracle Molecule. Now, you might remember an interview I did recently with a researcher, Chris Burris, who's looking to help people who experience pain, inflammation, loss of sleep, or lost mental acuity with his new C60 company, C60Evo.com. He has a product which is a consumable form of Carbon 60 called ESS60 that's been proven in peer-reviewed, published research to extend the lifespan of test rats by 90% while allowing them to live tumor-free. That's pretty amazing. Those rats were given the C60Evo.com formula. The formula is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C, and it's known to be a powerful anti-inflammatory. C60 is based on Nobel Prize winning chemistry. I highly recommend ESS60. The mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning and we're both pain-free and sleeping better than ever. Discover the benefits of Carbon 60. I call it the miracle molecule, ESS60, from c60evo.com. Now, make sure to use the coupon code RS1SPEC. That's RS1SPEC. 
Buy today at c60evo.com. That's c60evo.com. And don't forget the code RS1SPEC. This product has not been assessed by the FDA and is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited. With Richard Serrett. Frank Elbow is uh, with us. You'll know him from his work with the Hermetic Code, and his new book is Astana, Architecture, Myth, and Destiny. Do they get a lot of tourists there now, or is it kind of a closed society, Frank? No, it, they, they just celebrated the opening of the World Expo, and uh, about uh, three million people went um, to visit Astana for that. Um, you do not need a visa from, from Canada. It's the, of the Central Asian countries, this is really the um, kind of the crown jewel, as it were. Uh, very open uh, towards uh, foreign um, uh, tourism and also foreign investment. <laughs> oh, interesting. But it's, it's, ostensibly it's a communist country, isn't it? No. No. Ah, Okay. Interesting. It, it, it was. It was one of the 15 countries that broke off after the Soviet Union. It was the least likely to succeed because Kazakhstan had been plagued by perhaps the, the, the worst deck of cards in the, in the uh, 20th century. It was the dumping ground for Stalin's gulags. It was a nuclear test site for nearly 600 uh, secret nuclear tests and uh, the world's worst environmental disaster, the drying up of the Aral Sea, mm. uh, had happened on Kazakh soil, and there was a famine there. Uh, so for um, uh, it, it's really a, an apotheosis from, uh, like, it literally the flight of uh, the resurrection of the eagle could perhaps be best symbolized by um, uh, this city. It was the, the engine that could, so to speak. Fascinating. So back to the Beitarek Tower. Okay. Um, you have this wooden globe at the top, and it's surrounded by these, I guess they're petals, uh, 17 of them, which are supposed to represent some of the major religions. So what's the message there? Okay. Uh, I think you're conflating that with the Pyramid of Peace and Reconciliation. Ah, perhaps. I yeah. do that sometimes. So I there, conflate. There are three, three major buildings that um, are... Uh, most noteworthy, perhaps four in Astana, the Baitiric Tower, which we discussed, yep. the um, the giant glass uh, sphere of the World Expo site, the world's largest uh, sphere. Yes. Uh, there's also the um, Presidential Library, which I described as the all-seeing eye. Perhaps there's no other building in the world more uh, um, redolent of an all-seeing eye than this one, and then the building that we're talking about now, which is the Pyramid of Peace and Reconciliation. It sounds bizarre to say this, but every three years, at the apex of a giant glass pyramid in Kazakhstan is where the Assembly of World Traditional Religions meet, where they invite um, religious leaders from around the world to meet and discuss notions of religious equality. Uh, it's a sort of multi-faith cathedral dedicated to the renunciation of violence and promotion of faith. But the reason it's, it's done there is because um, uh, Kazakhstan in its soil, in its soul and soil, is uh, a nomadic country. It's uh, partially, I think, superficially Islamic, but they're very much open to the uh, tolerance of other faiths. It's perhaps the most tolerant of uh, 
the uh, Central Asian countries, and because of this, it has been a kind of hodgepodge of, of religious cultural experience. It incorporates Buddhism, uh, Christianity, Nestorian Christianity, uh, the mystical branch of Islam called Sufism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, a Jewish presence, and so even Zoroastrianism, some of the lost ancient religions like Tengrianism, this animist belief system celebrating the, um, the virtue of the sky, are all found here, still left alive uh, in Kazakh soil. So they've decided to evoke this in the form of a building that is a pyramid. Interesting. And is in there fact, th- that, that uh, the world uh, traditional religions, they meet every three years um, at uh, the apex of this, of this pyramid, and that will be happening this year in June. And what is the significance of, uh, of the three levels? Is there kind of an illuminated symbolism mm-hmm. there? Well, the, the building itself is designed by the British architect Norman Foster to be a journey from darkness into light. So when you descend into the building, you literally descend into the belly of the earth in this darkened foyer and uh, passage, and then slowly you ascend up to this gleaming uh, peak of light where it's uh, surrounded by a kind of, well, it's really a sanctum sanctorum from darkness to light. And uh, on the on the ceiling again, isn't there kind of another kind of an invocation of the sun god? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the 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 two features in are essential to understanding the matrix of belief in Astana. One is the ever presence of the sun, and the other is the eternal blue sky. So this the gold of the sun and the blue of the sky are, uh, I think, even by government prescription buildings have to have either a blue or a gold facade. But the sun god, isn't that antithetical to Christianity? Well, um, it depends how you, uh, how you want to look at it. I mean, it's the, uh, I mean, in, in, in what sense? Well, when I think of the sun god, I mean, we think of, you know, pagan, pagan worship. Uh, the, yeah, but the, in, the in this case, it's more a notion of uh, the, the world is, uh, the cosmos is alive, and there are life-giving values and virtues of, of the sun. And in many ways, even Yahweh and uh, uh, Jesus from the Gospels are uh, evoking these old uh, solar notions of, um, of heavenly ascent and the power of the sun. We're going to talk about this entertainment center, sort of billed as the world's largest tent. Tell me about that. Okay, this is another Norman Foster creation. It is uh, meant to be both an allusion to the highest peak in Kazakhstan, the Khan Tengri Mountain. There goes the Tengri again, the notion of uh, this reference to the supreme celestial deity of the Altaic world, world, the the sky. Um, But also it is um, meant to symbolize the tent, the ancient nomadic tent that um, uh, the the Kazakhs would... um, uh, uh, journey with, and in fact, in many regards, the the tent is seemingly facile and, and a rudimentary architectural construction, but it is full of um, esoteric symbolism, which is incorporated into this building. So the building on the on the surface looks like some Xanadu-esque fantasy uh, um, shopping mall in, in Kazakhstan, but on another level, it is um, meant to evoke these these older traditions of um, of the ancient nomads and 
uh, Tengrianism in, in particular, this, uh, this belief of, um, well, uh, being ecologically minded and um, uh, uh, deeply connected to the earth and nature. Uh, and then they have this uh, the shopping center. It's got an artificial beach. Yeah, uh, right. So it's got. <laughs> I see. I even forget these other details. Um, right. So there. It's. Um, it, it's a bit of a pleasure dome in that there's uh, all, all the shopping experiences, and at the, the the height of it, there is a, a full beach with water slide and and everything. And I'm guessing that this was all paid for because this is an oil-rich country, right? They've, they've got billions right. and I'm, billions of barrels of oil there. Correct. I mean, and we, we should probably clarify that, that um, uh, Kazakhstan has the full house of uh, natural resources. It's rich in oil, gas, diamond, uranium, and gold. And this is it uses its tremendous oil wealth to create this this city to be a kind of beacon of um, a kind of billboard of foreign investment. That's one level of looking at, at at the city. But beneath that are these mythical elements and themes that actually take us back to um, our, our ancient collective past. And with only what about 16 million residents? I mean, mm-hmm. are, are are most of the citizens then rich? No. No, no, no. The uh, uh, Astana itself is designed to be uh, only grow to three million people. Most of what they did was in designing the, the capital is they designed the capital to be a master plan from start. Most capital cities don't do this, but in, in, in Astana, it's, it's perimetered by a, a giant tree ring. And it's meant to only grow to 3 million people because after that amount, you get urban squalor, um, uh, poverty, and other uh, uh, things that aren't good for the civic good. So this uh, right now, I think it has a population of just over a million. But once it reaches 3 million, then they've already been preparing other planned capitals. Aha. Mm-hmm. The president there, I think according to the Constitution, they're only supposed to serve five-year terms. And here we are since independence, (laughs) 1991. He's been the only president. That's right. I mean, this guy is the um, kind of real-life George Washington of uh, Kazakhstani people. Uh, He is, uh, in in many respects, and I sort of compare him to Walt Disney in in the book, uh, well, both kind of Jefferson meets Walt Disney on steroids <laughs> in the sense that uh, Jefferson being a, uh, a founding father that believed ar- architecture could guide the uh, civic process of the nation and uh, Disney in the sense of creating this fantasy experience that is meant to collectively uh, bridge together uh, ideas of, um, of uh, solving the chaotic urban settings of of modern cities. That's what Disney set out to do. He was uh, spent 30 years of his life working on town planning. So, uh, but him and uh, as uh, his life and experience is rather, it's almost like a storybook legend. He grew up in a nomad's yurt, the most humble beginnings uh, on the steps, and he rose to become perhaps the most uh, strategically important uh, leader in Central Asia. I mean, this is the bridge between the East and the West, and it is wholly run by Nazarbayev. Nazarbayev is the uh, is Kazakhstan, and um, and, and many. It, they thought it was a foolish errand that he was trying to build this capital city. He didn't have much support for it, but um, uh, that was what he set out to do. And he used, um, you know, fable, folklore, and um, ideas of architecture. 
to to do that. So it, that, that, that to me makes it unique. It seems like they've decided, okay, we'll get to the democracy part later. Let's just work on the economic development first. Yeah, very much so. That Nazarbayev, right from the outset, said that Kazakhstan would be a managed democracy. That's sort of a euphemism for saying, okay, we were under the Soviet Union for nearly 300 years. There's no way we're going to go in toto to democracy and suddenly think this is going to be rainbows and lollipops. So it's certainly managed. He doesn't have any official opposition, and he is elected democratically, you could say, quote-unquote, by 90 percentile since 1991. They have no interest in wanting another public figure. That's why I call him the Tom Brady of autocrats. <laughs> Most people hate him, but he wins Super Bowls. And as you say, to refer to it as the, you know, the Illuminati capitalist is kind of trite. However, let me ask you, I mean, is there some nefarious intention here? Should we be concerned about what's going on, not only in Astana, but in Kazakhstan? Well, that wasn't the subject of this book, and I'm glad you brought that up, because what I set out to do in this book was to do something I'd never done before, which was my entire body of research up until this point was in decoding real, legitimate Masonic buildings, gardens, cemeteries, and the like. And in this case, this was a wholly imaginary Masonic capital, at least in the eyes of many, or an Illuminati capital, that I wanted to encode. And in the process of encoding this capital, I mean, I've placed these ideas here. It's not like I'm inventing them entirely. Mm -hmm. I'm using solid historical research and work. And the reason I'm setting out to do this is because I think it is myth more than anything else that can actually change the world. So I'm using this city as a, as a fable, as a way of kind of turning things on its head. There is a subtext in my entire book. I spent a very long time working on writing a subtext within the book. Every image is very carefully chosen. Even every word seemingly out of place is there for a very specific reason because I'm inviting, I want to invite the public to read deeply using the, um, uh, the language of design, architecture, and the imagination to see what lies beneath. And that's what this book is really about. At one level, it's a superficial reading, just like the stories of the Bible. That is one reading of the Bible. At a deeper level, there is an allegorical level. And at a much more even deeper level than that, there are different truths. And so I'm setting out to say, ah, at one level, you see that this is the Illuminati capital of the world. On another level, you'll, you'll find that there are these mythic aso associations. And yet at another level, which I'm really hoping to, to get people's attention, is to look and read very deeply. Frank, I've enjoyed this so much, I learned a heck of a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a few words about an upcoming episode. This segment, sponsored by The Horrible Movie Podcast, available at iTunes and thehorriblemoviepodcast.com. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible. Coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited, Police and the Paranormal. 
a retired police detective reveals some of the 60 real-life accounts from active and retired police officers involving unexplained phenomena, amazing coincidences, and cases where their sixth sense of intuition saved them and others from harm. A young officer was responding to a burglar alarm call at the restaurant and didn't know about the fact that it was haunted. She goes inside to do the normal inspections to make sure that nobody's in there, so her gun is drawn. The ghost of the restaurant makes all sorts of strange sounds and noises and plays tricks on the officer, but eventually even locks her inside a room at the inn when she's the only one in there and her partner is on the outside of the building. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.